NFL Sunday Ticket is now on YouTube and YouTube TV, which means that you can stay close to your team even if you don't live in their town. Like, maybe you're a Raven who married a Seahawk who got a job in the land of the Falcons. With NFL Sunday Ticket, you can watch your team's out-of-market Sunday afternoon games no matter where you live because you shouldn't have to change teams even if you change towns. NFL Sunday Ticket, now on YouTube and YouTube TV. Go to youtube.com slash presale to get $50 off. Terms and embargoes apply. Offer ends 919. No refund. Subscription auto renews. What's up? It's Kaylee Cuoco. When it comes to travel, we all have a happy place. I just went to my happy place. I just went to Maui, and it was truly amazing. Priceline has always been about getting you to your happy place for a happy price with deals you really can't find anywhere else, like up to 60% off select hotels in Costa Rica or five-star hotels for two-star prices in Cabo. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. Between the kids being home and hosting, everything in our house gets used up in summer. With Instacart, I can save money by stocking up on all my favorite summer brands. I save time by getting everything delivered in as fast as an hour. And I save myself a sink full of dirty dishes by stocking up on paper plates for the annual summer cookout. Save more on summer essentials? Spend more time enjoying summer. Add summer to cart. Download the app to get free delivery on your first three orders. Offer valid for a limited time. Minimum $10 per order. Additional terms apply. Hi, Red Inca listeners. My dad has made a new podcast and he wanted you to listen to the first episode. It will have its own feed that you will need to subscribe to, but this is just the first one for you because you are special. So please enjoy. I think you will because it's awesome even though I haven't heard it yet. And I am just reading what my dad has typed. Australia won the first test by 45 runs. Nine of those runs came from England buys. Maybe it didn't make a difference, but England would have chosen another keeper if they could have. Ted Pooley was supposed to be their man. Instead, he was awaiting trial in Christchurch. Welcome to Double Century. I'm Jared Kimber, your narrator. And a few years ago, I wrote a book called Test Cricket, The Unauthorised Biography. So this is a podcast series on the history of cricket through the people and moments that made the game. In our first episode, we go back to the beginning of Test Cricket. The birth involved betting, jail, and a journalist deciding the whole thing was worthy. Ted Pooley was never a straightforward guy. He died twice. Once, when the papers decided he passed away from liver cancer. It turned out they were wrong. Pooley was a proper professional player. Starting as a bowler who attacked a bit with the bat, he convinced a captain to let him keep, and he'd go on to be one of the best players in that position during his career. But nothing was ever that straightforward when it came to Pooley. The thing with Pooley was, there was always a story as well. He started his career shaving off some years from his birth certificate so that Surrey would notice him. He's not the first player to do that at the time and certainly not the first player to do that now, but it does sort of tell you a little bit about what kind of a person Pooley was. He would do anything to get ahead. Another time, he got drunk at lunch during a county game. It was a bottle of champagne he had won from another player in a bet. There were rumours that money had also changed hands. Either way, Surrey used a more sober wicketkeeper after lunch. 
There were rumours in cricket at that time that Pooley was throwing matches. He liked three things, gambling, drinking and keeping. Or as Wisden once put it, the faults of private character that marred Pooley's career and were the cause of the poverty in which he spent the latter years of his life, there is no need now to speak. He was in many ways his own enemy. But even to the last, he had a geniality and sense of humour that to a certain extent condoned his weaknesses. If some of that did not make sense, that is essentially wisdom saying he's a cheeky chappy but fun to be around. It was Pooley's work with the gloves that got him on the boat for that first tour. In 370 first-class matches, he made 100. He was known for aggressive counter-innings, but they rarely lasted long, though his greatest might have been the 93 he made with a broken finger. He was tough, nuggety, kind of the prototype of what wicket-keepers would become, could throw the bat, great up at the stumps, and very cheeky. He always had a word. It's just that his cheeky was bordering on criminal and he'd certainly have found himself suspended under current match-fixing regulations. If Pooley's personality seems a weird fit for English cricket's first major tour of Australia, it's probably because you're visualising tea and cucumber sandwiches. You need to readjust your framework. In spite of the strange shape of the bat, many of the players find no difficulty in driving the ball. And indeed, one of the most interesting features of the day's play was that not only did the public witness an interesting pageant, but they also saw a most exciting and interesting cricket match. Cricket started as a street game. Then Hambleton and a few other places came along and set up the very strict laws as to how it could be played so that it could be bet on easier. Cricket wasn't just the first international sport. It was essentially the beginning of what we know of modern sport. They built fences to ensure people had to pay, charged extra when WG Grace played, and the whole thing, even the amateur side, maybe even more so the amateur side, was a business. They just didn't term it that way. When I made the film Death of a Gentleman, we would go out and we would give these talks with the film afterwards. Quite often, people would say, shouldn't we go back to the amateur days? which misunderstands where modern sport is, but it also misunderstands what the amateur days were. That was just a way of the elite making sure that they were still playing in these events and seen as above the other players. They weren't just a player, they were a gentleman. That's what cricket was, but there was still a business underneath that. The reason England toured Australia in the first place was to make money. This was a business venture. You may have this idea of it being this gentlemanly thing with handshakes and nods and doing it for your country, but even back then, all the way to the very beginnings of cricket when it was a street game, there's always been money involved. To make even more money, before they got to Australia on this tour, they went to New Zealand first. There, the newspapers printed the odds and daily cricket writing included how many bets were made at the match. That's how much cricket and money went hand in hand. The first occasion of match fixing in cricket came almost 50 years before this. People have always wanted money. Who knew? That said, Ted Pooley clearly wanted to make cash more than most players. In one match in Christchurch, Pooley was missing with an injury. So he headed over to make some bets with Ralph Donkin, a railway engineer who was by no means a professional bookmaker. Donkin offered odds on the exact score of each batsman. Pooley, being a smart professional cricketer, 
bet on all the batsmen to make ducks, knowing that in a game like this, there would be more than enough to make his money. The Canterbury team consisted of 25 players, which again was actually quite common at the time, as most teams from England were seen as so much better. The only way to make it competitive was to have more players on the opposition. But think about it this way. If you need 25 players, that also means you need more ordinary players, which means Pooley's bets on the Ducks was a pretty solid idea. Of course, we should also add that he would go on to umpire in the match. So um, that may have been one of those conflict of interests you hear about in cricket. The truly mad thing is that no one really suggested that Pooley had cheated with his umpiring. But there were 11 Ducks which pocketed Pooley £36. According to the random inflation calculator I just googled, it means that he made around 4,200 quid in today's money. That's probably a few weeks of wages for him. And he's from Surrey, so you know he was probably overpaid to begin with. At this point, he hadn't actually committed a crime, but something went on when he tried to pick up his winnings. It resulted in Duncan, the amateur bookmaker, having a physical altercation which is a very nice way of saying Pooley kicked his ass. He punched him three times in the face and also apparently tore his clothes to shreds. The fight seems to have stemmed from Duncan feeling like he was ripped off from Pooley, which I suppose he was. But maybe he wasn't cut out to be a bookmaker in the first place. Pooley took his winnings and moved on with the tour. The team moved to Dunedin, and it was there that Pooley was arrested and brought back to Christchurch. Pooley then had more bad luck. He wasn't arrested for match-fixing, which he might have had a solid case of suggesting he had not been involved in, but he was fined £5 for the attack on Duncan the bookmaker, which also he could cover because he was well up, but he was charged with willfully and maliciously destroying the bookmaker's property, and for that he had to await trial. Sadly for Pooley, one of the witnesses had caught the boat back to Melbourne so he had to wait for him to return. He never returned, and so eventually the trial went ahead, and there seemed to be little proof that Pooley had damaged any property, and it took the jury less than an hour to find him not guilty. The locals of Christchurch felt so bad for Pooley, he was sent on his way with £50 from a local whip-around and a gold ring. It was while Pooley was awaiting trial that he missed the first test. When crowds such as these gather in Sydney's Hyde Park, they've got fever, test match fever. And during the MCC tours in Australia, they're able to follow the game ball by ball on huge display boards. When the tours are in England, Australians expect the same service from the radio stations. Since atmospherics are liable to affect reception, cables have been called in to assist radio. It's a very ingenious scheme, as you'll see, for the atmosphere of a broadcast from the ground is retained, although the transmission is made in Australia on minute-to-minute information supplied by cable. There's no time to explain the whole paraphernalia, but there's an effects man to reproduce crowd scenes from a record. This was an extraordinary match for the first. The Australian batsman, Charles Bannerman, opened up. He was English-born. Sorry to those who still moan about this, but it just shows how cricket has always rolled. Bannerman faced the first ball, scored the first run, made the first 50, the first 100, the first 150, and then was the first batsman to retire her. He also still holds a record. No batsman in the history of the game has scored a larger percentage of the runs in a completed innings than Bannerman. He made 165 out of 245. Harry Jupp made the second highest score in the match, 
he made 63. So right now you're thinking, this Bannerman is some player. But that was his only first-class 100. He played two more tests, ended up as an umpire, and wasn't even the best player in his family. That would be Alec Bannerman. Charles averaged 15 over his next five years in first-class cricket. And no one is sure why. Some wrote of drink and gambling, but in truth, he just became the ghost once known as Bannerman. He ended up as a bookmaker while he was still umpiring. Yes, that was quite common. In 1891, he was taken to court to answer on charges of deserting his wife. When he was asked how he made his money, he said, by cricketing, your worship. Sadly, after that, it was by other means. England were not at their best for this match. They had to play after a travel day, and they probably spent less time in the business class lounge than most modern teams. At this point, no one really rated Australian cricket. Teams had been touring Australia from England since the 1850s. This squad was tired from playing too much cricket. Where have I heard that before? And several of them had been seasick on the journey over from New Zealand. And they had James Southerton, who was 49 years old. With all that, it wasn't surprising that England replied with only 196. Billy Midwinter, who played for Australia and England, are you sensing a theme here, took 5 for 78. Australia collapsed to 104 all-out in the third innings. Alfred Shaw, who finished his career with 2,000 first-class wickets, took 5 for 38. This meant England needed 154 to win. They fell to 22 for 4, had a 40-run partnership, but left armour Tom Kendall, born in England, seriously, it does come up a lot, took 7 for 55 for Australia to win the game. It was seen as massive in Australia, a country in the arse end of nowhere that was still working out what it was and still wasn't united in a federation. Just a collection of states on a big old island and not even all the states were involved in this team. One Australian newspaper wrote, It shows that in bone as muscle, activity, athletic vigour and success in field sports, the Englishmen born in Australia do not fall short of the Englishmen born in Surrey or Yorkshire. That's a lot different than the kind of gloating you hear from Australians these days. Not even any mention of a broken arm. So there you have it. The best of Australia beat a full-strength England and Ted Pooley missed a chance to play in the first test. Except, to use a Luke Skywalker phrase from unarguably the best Star Wars film, every word of what you just said was wrong. Australia did not beat England. The combined Australia 11 defeated Lily White's 11. WG Grace and Fred Spothoff didn't play. Spothoff was sitting out because his mate was not chosen as wicketkeeper. Grace wasn't on the tour. None of the Graces were on the tour, as Lily White's tour was for professional players, not gentlemen. We think of Test cricket as this international endeavour, with selection committees looking for the best players in their country. This was a match between a professional team and a combined Australia 11 that wasn't even all the country. Lily White wasn't even representing Lords. He was just a really good cricketer. How good? 1,200 wickets at 15 and two first-class hundreds. He came from a famous family of cricketers and had toured Australia and even the United States before this. Lily White even had his own version of Wisden, James Lily White's Cricketer's Annual, and was a well-known and respected person in the game. And so he wanted to make some more money by creating a tour. 
he selected a bunch of professional players because of trouble he'd had with gentlemen on his previous tour of Australia. This wasn't a real tour of cricket as we know it. Regularly, Lily White's 11 would play against teams of far more than 11 players. They rarely had a day off. They either travelled or played. This was a chance for professional English cricketers to make money in their off-season. And it gets more interesting the further you look. This game was not advertised as an international. If Lily White wasn't mentioned, it was called All England 11 versus Australian Players. And perhaps the most important thing to note was this wasn't the first test. Large cricket matches had used that title since the 1850s. There was no governing body. There were just cricket boards, grounds and promoters trying to get bums on seats. And that word seemed to help them do that. If you were running a large match, you had a touring team and a few star players. Just slap test on it and hope a few extra people would come. To show how little sway this match had at the time, when Fred Spotheth pulled out, his replacement was Frank Allen. He also didn't play because he was attending a local fair instead. Yes, I know. From these tiny seedlings will grow graceful willows, not planted simply to please the eye, but for a specific purpose. For this is Suffolk, a centre of the cricket bat industry. Here in lovely green meadows alongside running streams, willows grow in their thousands. And in this nursery, young saplings are carefully brought to maturity. So how did this random cricket match become a test? Enter Clarence Moody. Perhaps the most important man in test cricket you've never heard of. Moody was a South Australian cricket writer. In 1894, Moody wrote a book called South Australian Cricket. It was republished after that and in it he made a list of what he decided to be real tests. Moody wrote under the blogging handle, although this was a minute or two before blogs, of point. And this was like a blogging exercise. I mean, it's partially a listicle. I think Moody may still work for BuzzFeed. This list, by a random writer in Adelaide with no affiliation to either of the MCCs, Melbourne or Lords, wrote up what became the official list of tests. This bloke just wrote a book, and they turned that book into cricket canon. There are probably a bunch of reasons this became official. One was that he was hard. He poured over the quality of teams, looking for what he thought was test match worthy. He wasn't a homer either. He overlooked Australia's win versus the MCC in 1788 because he didn't think the MCC team was strong enough. WG Grace played in that team. You cannot underestimate how important that match would go on to be. Australia beating England in Australia caused a bit of a storm. Australia beating England and WG Grace at Lords, I mean, come on. That is essentially what built the Ashes. That is essentially what built international cricket at that point. Not to mention that it was also an incredible moment for Australian sport. And he left it out. Clarence Moody was a hard ass. But it was also a fairly exhaustive list of the best matches ever played. And as Gideon Haig once wrote, the absence of anything better led to this being the list. So test cricket started with a match-fixing scandal, the best players not wanting to play or making the tour, a bunch of professionals making their own way, and a writer deciding the whole thing was legit. It was from this that our game was born. Kicking, screaming and puking all over the place. Ted Pooley's career slid after that series and he became bankrupt. He died for a second and final time in the Lambeth Infirmary. 
This time paralysis and complications did him in. He played 370 first-class matches and made 9,345 runs. In one match, he took eight catches and made four stompings. Ted Pooley never played a test. Double Century is hosted and written by me, Jared Kimber. Nick McCorriston is the producer. This episode was fact-checked by Abhishek Mukherjee and Bertie Moores. Double Century is brought to you by the people on Patreon who support me, so please, if you can, go over there. And to those who already do, thank you very much. This is a new podcast. This is a series that we're doing. There's going to be 11 episodes in the first series. Please review, share, do all the things that you can do on social media to help this podcast. This is the first series, but we're hoping for another series. But obviously, we have to make sure that the podcast actually gets successful. So if you liked what you heard here, please help us out in any way that you can. Thank you for listening. Thanks for listening. Remember to subscribe to Double Century for the first season if you want to hear any more. Sports Social Podcast Network.